Today's reading will be taken from Matthew 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Let's pray as we look at this together. Our Father, we thank you that it is absolutely true that it is the ministry of Jesus to love his people. Father, we thank you that's what Jesus did, that we see in the pages of Matthew's Gospel, that's what he did for his people, for people that were in front of him. But Father, we thank you that for 2,000 years since uh, these things happened and were written, Jesus hasn't stopped loving his people. And so, Father, now as we hear him speak in his word, please, uh, would we know again his love for us, and particularly this evening as he says difficult things, things that we wouldn't choose to look at necessarily on a a sunny evening in August. Father, please would we know again his love for us, his care for us. That means he says these things to us. Amen. We've heard already this evening from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Nearly at the very end, Jesus says these words to his people. You must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The beginning of Matthew's Gospel tells us about the first time Jesus came into the world as a baby called Emmanuel, called Jesus. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back. At an hour when you don't expect, there won't be warning. So be ready. Be ready. And the question we're going to think about this evening is, what does it mean to be ready for Jesus to come back? How do you know if you're ready? What does it look like to be ready? What do we do to be ready for Jesus to come back? I suppose it's especially obvious 
at the moment, that when important people are coming, you get ready. It's particularly obvious at the moment for the staff of St. Mary's Hospital. Uh, two weeks ago, 6 o'clock in the morning, 22nd of July, they get the phone call. Kate Middleton's coming. Now, presumably by that point, they'd already done quite a lot of getting ready. I was reading earlier this week, art was commissioned, especially for the ward that she would be in, that would uh, not calm her, because that's patronizing, apparently, for women in labor, but would enliven her. Uh, apparently, that's what you want when you're in labor. Uh, but they're, they're getting ready, because here she comes. And the phone call comes, you, know, you do your final bit of cleaning, you make sure everything's spick and span, you make sure the crash teams are ready in case anything goes wrong. When someone important is coming, you get ready. And in tonight's passage, we're going to spend some time with John the Baptist, who is preparing people for someone even more important than Kate Middleton. He's preparing people for Jesus to come. He's saying, here's how you get ready when Jesus comes. As Simon said, for these three weeks in August, we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4 of Matthew's Gospel. We've called it the preparation of the Saviour. Because in chapter 5, Jesus is going to start his public ministry. He's going to come in with a bang with the, uh, the well-known Sermon on the Mount. But in these chapters, we're looking at the few weeks before that starts. We're looking at Jesus getting ready, being prepared for his ministry. So next week, we'll see Jesus himself being prepared. The following week, we'll see him preparing his team. Tonight, actually, Jesus is in the wings, getting ready to come on. Because tonight, we'll see people being prepared for Jesus. We'll see John the Baptist uh, in the words of verse 3. His job is today, as it was 2,000 years ago, to prepare the way for the Lord, to get people ready for the Lord Jesus to come. It says it quickly at verses 1 to 4, just to get a handle on who John is. Uh, John the Baptist is called, but actually Matthew focuses on his preaching, his message. So look down verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he does baptize, but Matthew says above all, he's a preacher and his message is, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is near because the king is coming. I look down at verse 3, this, John the Baptist, is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John is saying the kingdom is near because the king is coming, the Lord is coming. A path needs to be made ready for him. This quotation is from Isaiah 40 in the Old Testament, which along with Malachi 3 and 4 are two big promises that before God comes to rescue his people, dramatically, finally, before he comes, there'll be a messenger who comes to get people ready. There'll be a messenger who comes like the great old prophet Elijah to get people ready for God to come. I think that's why in verse 4 you get these details of John's wardrobe and diet. The camel's hair clothing, the leather-based belt round his waist, his food with locusts and wild honey. That is Elijah from 2 Kings chapter 1. Here is the Elijah that was promised. He's going to come before God. He's going to come before the Lord's rescue. Who's going to get people ready. So John is preparing a way for the Lord. He's getting people ready. And we'll see in this section of Matthew's Gospel tonight two things that it means to be ready for Jesus to come. It means to obey John's demand for repentance. It means to receive Jesus' offer of the Holy Spirit. We'll think about those two in turn. First, John, who demands repentance. 
in verses 5 to 10. Repent, demanding repentance, that is the summary of John's ministry that we get throughout this passage. So verse 11, he summarizes it himself. I baptize you with water for repentance. John's ministry is all about repentance. Or verse 2, we've already seen his message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So John is demanding repentance. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus demands as well. Just over the page, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, is Jesus' first public words. And they are exactly the same as John's first words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus is going to, just like John, say that to be ready for him to come, repentance is the first thing. But in this gospel, in Matthew's gospel, this is the, the chapter where we learn what repentance is. It's a word that is used a few times through the gospel. But this is the sustained discussion on it. This is where we come in Matthew to see what does repentance mean. Basically, the word means turning around. It's that naturally we face away from God, we run away from him. And so repentance is to turn around, to face God, to listen to him and not ourselves, to trust him and not our own resources, to go his way and not our own. Repentance is to turn around. Uh, But John shows us, as he demands repentance, he shows us a bit more detail. What, What will it look like? What will a life of repentance look like? What will it mean in the first century, in the 21st century? And in particular, we see two groups coming to John the Baptist. And from each one, we learn a lesson. One positive, they get it right. One negative, they get it wrong. We see two things of what repentance will look like, what it will mean. So first, we see from the the crowds that repentance will start with confessing sins. Repentance will start with confessing sins. Just look down verses 5 and 6. People went out to him, to John, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. This is meant to be for us a positive example. This is what they were meant to do when John came along. They were meant to come confessing their sins. And you see from the details here how Matthew shows us this repentance. It was broad and it was deep. So it's confession. It was broad and it was deep. So verse 5, you see the breadth of it. People go from Jerusalem, all Judea, the whole region of the Jordan. It's emphasized from all over the place they're coming. It's not every single individual, but all sorts of people from all over the place are coming to John the Baptist. The powerful and the marginalized, they're coming to him, confessing their sins. The wealthy and the poor, the young and the old, the powerful and the marginalized, the pillars of society and the outsiders, the outcasts. All sorts of people who have nothing in common, who are nothing alike, nothing except that they know they're sinners. And so they come to John and confess their sins. This would have been an astonishing gathering. All kinds of people from every area of society coming together to John the Baptist, confessing their sins and being baptised by him in the Jordan. It was a broad confession. All sorts of people. It was also a deep confession. It wasn't a superficial. I've made a few mistakes. There's a few things that I've just bogged up a bit this week. This was a deep confession. This was in the heart of my being. I have a problem. You see that from the fact that John 
thought that the symbol he needed was baptism. Verse 6, as they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan. Many will know, in the Bible, baptism, it's a picture of washing, like a giant bath in the river as you go in and you say, I'm dirty, I need to be cleaned. There's grime and muck and slime and dirt in my heart that needs to be cleaned away. Then baptism as well, it's a picture of death. As someone is buried under the water, held there for a few seconds, but they couldn't survive even a few minutes. Baptism is a picture of death. It's saying, I deserve to die. I need to die. That's how radical the change needs to be if I'm going to stop sinning. I can't just take some pills. I can't just put a bandage over this problem. The only way I will stop sinning is if the part of me that loves it dies. This is a deep confession. As people are coming from all over the place saying, I'm dirty. I need to die. Can you picture the scene a little bit? There's all these, you know, all sorts of people come in, the, the powerful, the not, you know, governors and slaves coming together and together saying that, together saying, I'm a sinner. I'm dirty. I need to die. Just like her. Just like him. In this crowd, you ask people, what do you do? You bump into someone you've not met. They're from the Jordan. You're from Jerusalem. You bump into someone. What do you do? I sin. And so do I. So does she. So does he. This is a crowd where that question, what do you do? It's not a way of working out people's pecking, place in the pecking order. It's not a way of working out who am I superior to? Who do I have to be nice to? It's a question that levels. In this crowd, everyone gives the same answer to this question, what do you do? I sin. This is a place where uh, there is no superiority. There's no one who can be shoved around because they don't deserve to be here because they're not good enough. This is a place where everyone is on the same footing because everyone comes and they confess their sin. And of course, that is what the church should be, a place where people... Replent, repent. A place where confession goes deep. Which doesn't mean that everyone will know the particular ways that an individual struggles with sin. But it does mean that no one will have the impression from us that we don't struggle. That no one will think, I can't talk to that person because I've just been met with revulsion instead of love. A church will be a place where no one is excluded because no one's different. We sin. I sin. You sin. It's what marks us out. So repentance, firstly, will be confession, confessing sin. And secondly, it will be bearing fruit. The second group that comes to John, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the moral, the religious, top rank. But, whereas the people are a positive example, these Get it wrong. They're here to say, this is what you don't do. Verse 7 tells us the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to where he was baptizing. You see, they weren't coming to be baptized. That's clear later in Matthew's Gospel. None of them were. They were just coming along to have a look. They want to be there, because this is the newest religious thing in town. They want to be there so people can be clear, we're the ones in charge. John doesn't get to do this without us coming and having a look, making sure we're okay with it. And they want to be there so they can pick up their John the Baptist key ring as they go back into town in Jerusalem and they can just flash it around. Oh yeah, I got this in the Jordan. Have you not been to see the new preacher? 
Oh. Oh yeah, of course it's a bit hot, it's a bit of a long way to go, but some of us are committed to God, some of us are willing to go. It's a new religious thing, they want to be involved, they want to show that they've been there. But be baptised, confess sins, okay, we don't have sins to confess. And so there they are, there to make their judgement, a bit like Ofsted coming in, and the nervous glances are going up, what are they going to say? The people starting to wonder, here we are following John, are they going to tell us he's wrong, that we shouldn't be? What are they going to say? They're all watching the Pharisees, the Sadducees, which is a mistake, because behind them, John the Baptist is marching out of the water. Snakes! You brood of vipers! You snakes! What are you doing here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, John knows that they're just here to pick up some some God points, just to rack up a few more points, just to make sure they've been to see the newest thing, they're covered. But John knows that repentance isn't shown in religious attendance. It isn't shown in how many preachers you follow on Twitter. Repentance is shown in a changed life. It's shown in bearing fruit. And so that's what he says in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John the Baptist shows repentance, it isn't just regret. It isn't even just confessing sin. It is to change. If someone's repented, there'll be fruit, there'll be evidence in their life that grows out of that. There'll be, as he says in verse 8, fruit in keeping with repentance. So the religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it left their hearts unchanged. And John says, if that carries on, if there's no evidence of repentance, the warning is that dead trees that are just taking up space will be cut down and burned. Repentance is shown in bearing fruit. And so I think verse 9 is the particular fruit that John wants the Pharisees and the Sadducees to develop, to show, to demonstrate that they have repented. So I guess particularly for those of us who are tempted like them to think that it's in our religious performance, our, the, the stuff we do that we measure up. Uh, this would be a word for us as well. Verse 9, verse 8, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Their problem is, complacency, smugness in who they are, which team they're on. And John wants them to grow a fruit of of humility, of not finding their confidence in their team. A couple of weeks ago I was talking with uh, someone about liberals in the Church of England, people including vicars, bishops, who where there's a choice in the Church of England, do we follow what the Bible says? Do we do go with what the culture around us, the society thinks? are urging us to say, let's go with with culture, let's leave behind the Bible, let's move on. I was talking, we were talking, uh, why we think people do that, how those people respond to Christians in the Church of England who want to hold on to the Bible, how we should respond to them. Until I was cut short as the person I was talking to said to me, you know, if anyone was listening to this conversation, you realise they would just think you are incredibly smug. 
which shut me up for a bit. Uh, but I was thinking about it later, and I realized not only was she right that I sounded smug, but actually she was just right that I was smug. That I thought that I knew uh, why people were doing what they were doing, that I knew their motives, that I must be right because I'm in the right team. I think that was the most insidious thing. I was doing verse 9. I'm a good evangelical. I'm on the right team. I, I have John Calvin as my father. I have John Piper. I have John Stott. I've got all the Johns. <laughs> One day, God will show everyone that I'm right, that I'm on the right team. And so, John, this John, says to me, you snake. You snake. People who've really repented, they don't think like that. They aren't self-confident or self-impressed. They aren't smug about other people thinking, I'm better than them, I'm on the right team, I'm fine. Now, people who've repented know that God can produce good evangelicals out of stones. And don't spend a lot of time being impressed with who we are, who we know, who we follow. See, repentance isn't shown in how religious I am, what group I associate with. It's shown in the fruit of a changed heart. And in particular for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for me, that will mean that repentance is bearing a fruit of not thinking that I'm fine just because I'm in the right team, in the right group, because I go to the right church. But it will mean that my heart is changed. So John demands repentance which will start with confessing that we have a deep, deep problem with sin and then go on to bear fruit of love towards others and humility. But I wonder if you see the problem with John the Baptist. I wonder if you feel the problem that I've been feeling over the last couple of weeks as I've tried to work this through. I think one preacher on this passage said it wonderfully, simply and rightly. The ministry of John the Baptist, if it wasn't followed by the ministry of Jesus, is simply cruel. It's simply cruel. If it wasn't followed by Jesus, then for John to tell sinners to bear good fruit, he might as well go to a dead tree and tell it to grow lemons. And you could stand there in front of the tree and you could shout at it as loud and as long as you wanted And it would be cruel, and it would be a waste of time, because a dead tree is never going to grow anything. And John the Baptist comes along and says, you're sinners. There's a problem right down in your heart. Now grow some good fruit. The ministry of John the Baptist, if it was just by itself, without the ministry of Jesus, would just be cruel. And it would be a waste of time. It would never achieve anything. Any more than shouting at a dead tree is going to make it grow fruit. But of course, the ministry of John the Baptist is followed by Jesus. Jesus, who can, in the language of verse 9, turn even stones into healthy living trees that can grow lemons or oranges or anything he likes. He can take dead sinners and give them life and let them grow fruit. Jesus can do in us what John the Baptist, at his best, can only demand from us. And so that's why we turn in verses 11 to 12 to see at Jesus, who follows John the Baptist, his demand of repentance is exactly the same. 
but only Jesus can baptize with the Spirit. John's baptism was a picture, it was a symbol of purifying people, of having a wash, but Jesus can really purify people with the Spirit. He will burn away sin. Look at verse 11. Again, this is John talking, saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In the last month, Emma and I moved flat, which means we've done that thing you do, which is the final clean of your old flat, which I quite enjoy because you're cleaning things and thinking, now this is done. I'll never have to clean this cupboard again because I'm never going to get it dirty again. That's going to become someone else's problem. My last memory of this cupboard is that it's going to be clean. And that can be my memory of it for the rest of my life. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about cupboards in flats I used to live in. But if I did, I could remember them being clean. And so I was in the kitchen. I was going through the cupboards. Uh, cupboards are quite easy to do. They've had plates and stuff in them. You know, you go through them quite quickly. They look clean. It's good. So finished, 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 clean, clean. And then I got to the cupboard under the sink. Now, I have no idea what happened in the cupboard under the sink. We still cleaning products in there. So you'd think if anything leaked, it would just get cleaner. But something happened down there, and it was a disaster. And I, I'd done well. I'd done seven out of eight cupboards. They're all looking good. I thought, I'm going to do this one. And 15 minutes later, I thought, I'm really not, am I? See, I, I don't know what was down there. But there's something in that cupboard that water just wouldn't clean. Whatever bleaches I threw at it just wouldn't clean. And there are some things that the, the water of John, the baptism of John, his demand for repentance, will never clean, will never purify. But Jesus baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. Now, in a rare moment of common sense, I didn't set fire to the wooden covers because that wouldn't have worked. But the picture here is metal, and we know that is how it works. You put metal in a huge vat, you put a huge fire underneath it, the dirt burns away. And when you let it freeze again, I guess, when you let it solidify, you end up with pure metal. Fire can clean things, can purify things that water never can. And Jesus' baptism with the Spirit and with fire, I take it that's the same thing, that when he baptizes with the Spirit, the Spirit comes as a fire who purifies us, who cleanses us. We'll wash away things that. John's demands for repentance, that John's baptism for repentance never could. This week I was away helping a lead on a teenager's summer camp, and one of the songs that we sung this week with them, it's a kid's song really, it's very simple, but it stuck with me as I was thinking about these verses. Singing to Jesus in the chorus, What a mighty, mighty saviour you are. What a mighty, mighty saviour you are. You can wash away my sin. You can change my heart within. What a mighty, mighty saviour you are. Those are two things that I could never do, that John the Baptist could never do, to take away my sin, to change my heart within. But Jesus can do that by his spirit who comes as a fire, who purifies us. Jesus can change our hearts so we start to bear fruit. He is a mighty saviour. In John's language in verse 11, after me will come one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. The ministry of Jesus is far superior to the ministry of John the Baptist because he can purify, because he can change hearts. 
Now, I do need to be clear, it isn't that John and Jesus, they're bad cop, good cop. So John comes along and says, uh, repent, change, sort things out. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it's fine, you know, I'll take care of everything, don't worry. We've seen that Jesus' demand for repentance is exactly the same as John's. And verse 12, soberingly, uh, shows that anyone who ignores Jesus' offer of the purifying fire of his spirit will face the unquenchable, destroying fire. So verse 12, we read of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, I know no one who likes to think of Jesus throwing people into hell, into fire. But there's a reality that you can't read Matthew's gospel and come away with a Jesus who doesn't talk about it five times in this gospel. Jesus uses the picture of fire. At once he calls it eternal fire. Here it's unquenchable fire. And always in Matthew's gospel it's associated with the idea of fruit. Of seeing what tree bears fruit and what doesn't. This is the image that Jesus will return as a judge. That those whose lives show the work of the Spirit, purifying, bearing fruit, he'll gather into his barn to be with him in eternal life forever. But those who don't, who've never received the Spirit from him, will be destroyed. That is the only Jesus that Matthew's Gospel will offer us. The only Saviour. It's the only Jesus that the Bible will offer us. But he is offered to us. To anyone who will confess that they're a sinner and repent and turn towards him. Jesus offers himself and he offers his spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. For anyone who turns to Jesus in repentance, the spirit will come and once for all purify and change and burn away sin. Make us clean enough, fit enough that Jesus can live with us. And then he'll start his slow, ongoing work of growing fruit in us. Fruit of love and joy and peace. Fruit of humility that we'd never grow by ourselves. John demands repentance and so does Jesus. But Jesus comes along and offers to baptize in the Spirit anyone who turns to him. We started by asking, how do you get ready for Jesus to come back? I think really this section of Matthew throws up three things you could try. And says only one will work. You could try, like the Pharisees, who basically say, we don't even need John. We're ready already. We're in the right group. We're on the right team. When God comes back, we'll just be automatically in. It's a dead cert. You could, like the Pharisees, say, we don't need to get ready. I've got the right parents. I'm in the right church. I know the right people. And again, John says to those people, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Trees that don't bear fruit will be thrown into the fire. Or you could be like, you don't have it explicitly here, but I assume that in this crowd, like in every group this century where the gospel is preached, there'll be people who said, okay, John's telling me, uh, repent, confess sins, bear fruit. I need that, but I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to go home and I'm going to try harder. I'm going to take some lemons. I'm going to sellotape them onto the tree and then look, there'll be some fruit. But inside, I can't change that. But on the outside, I can stick on some lemons. 
I can change myself, I can work a little bit harder. I don't need Jesus. But Jesus is the only saviour who can take away our sin, who can change our heart, because Jesus is the only saviour who can offer a spirit who will burn those things away in us. And so the third way you could try to prepare for Jesus is to come to Jesus. To turn to him in repentance. To turn away from trusting in yourself, the group that you're in, your ability to grow fruit. To turn to him and say, will you give me your spirit? Will you give him to me to purify me, to change me? And the promise of Matthew 3 is that he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptise you, not sprinkle, not give you a little slice, not give you a little piece. Baptise you, he'll dunk you in. He'll pour him on you. It's the promise of Jesus to anyone who comes to him and says, can I have your spirit? He will purify you. Like you never can. Like John never can. But he will. Let's pray now and ask his spirit to keep working among us. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you offer your spirit, your spirit, the one who's been with you from eternity, the one who we'll see next week came with you at your baptism and empowered you in your life that you offer your spirit to us. Father, if there are any here who've never received the spirit of Jesus, please help us to see our need for him, that there's none but him who can purify us, change us, grow fruit in us. And Father, for those who know the spirit working in us, Please would he continue to do that. Please would he continue to grow his fruit in us that would be more and more ready for the Lord Jesus to return. Amen.